right, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You can see the end of the book from here. We've, we've arrived at the end. We're going to begin reading at verse 5, and I'll read on to the end of the chapter. As you are able, please, if you'd stand for the reading of God's holy word. Again, 2 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 5 and reading on to the end. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Be seated, please. All right. Well, we, like I said a moment ago, have come to the end of this marvelous letter that we refer to as 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church who had been in an incredible division, division that came about because of a partisan kind of spirit, as well as divisions that arose because of the incursion of sin and some pretty heinous sin that the church, at least some in the church, thought was just fine. It was, it was not really a problem and, and uh, gloried in rather than actually disciplining. And then upon hearing from the Apostle Paul the first time around, uh, discipline was undertaken, some things were dealt with, but more questions came up. And as you know, if you've been paying attention to uh, these messages all along this year, not everybody in Corinth appreciated what Paul had to say. And many looked for an opportunity to tell him to go take a hike, that he didn't have the authority that he claimed to have, that he was really... On the one hand, he was overly harsh, or on the other hand, he was just too weak. To, he got all these conflicting kinds of accusations that were thrown at him uh, with, uh, with uh, a great deal of anger, it seems like, as well as um, just a desire to undermine everything that he uh, had set out to do. And he is the guy who started this church, so his heart is tremendously burdened. He was willing to take whatever it was, though, uh, that would come his way if it, he would see them restored. And that is something that has been a theme of his throughout this book. And you see it again here in these closing <laughs> verses. 
if, if it means it looks like he failed because he wasn't up to somebody else's standard, okay, fine, as long as they were walking righteously before the Lord. But there's, uh, this section starts off with a word that all of us love, I am sure. Everybody loves would love these two these two words these this phrase here examine yourselves we everybody here loves to be examined right oh i do i just just can't wait for the next time um well there aren't very many people that i know that like being examined it's just the opposite of course i think we all like it much better when we're the ones that get to test somebody else or maybe you've had some experience in your schooling somewhere along the way where you had a teacher that was a favorite teacher and he or she became a favorite teacher because at one point or the other, when it came to exam time, he or she said to the class, now class, I want you to make up the test questions. Anybody ever have a test teacher that did that? I, I had one once. I've always liked him ever since. <laughs> of course, the, the caveat on that was is that you know, he did tack on to the end of that. Of course, I get to decide which ones, which test questions we're actually going to use, which sort of took some of the joy out of it. But nonetheless, um, one way or the other, exam times are not much fun. And now we come to the end of this letter of 2 Corinthians, and for the Corinthian church, and for, for us as well, it is... Exam time. This is your final exam, dear friends, from the book of 2 Corinthians. Only this exam is not going to be one where we just get to go through and study the contents of the book and then regurgitate it back out on a piece of paper uh, in an essay or a short answer or a multiple guess kind of question. This kind of exam is one that is not so easily dealt with. Because this exam is the exam of living out what you've been taught. That's much harder, isn't it? We might wish that we could have written the questions. But the Lord has written the questions before us, and we're about to be tested. And, you know, the problem um, in Corinth was the Corinthians had been writing their own questions about what it meant to be faithful. And Paul called those questions, called their standards into account. And when he he did that, they turned to trying to subjecting Paul to examination. They wanted to examine him regarding his credentials and his character and his abilities and so on. And Paul's basically saying, now it's your turn, Corinthians. Throughout this entire letter, Paul has been teaching and exhibiting what is necessary to be a warrior for the kingdom. Um, What is necessary to tear down spiritual strongholds with the glory of God in view. How are we going to live in light of those teachings? It says, you take your final exam this morning. Testing your ability to defeat spiritual strongholds in your own hearts and in the lives of other people. Perhaps Paul's words here will help you understand why examination is necessary. Let's begin at verse 5. 
which tells us something. It, it gets right to the heart of it, as far as particularly our heart. Because this examination is personal. This is not about you looking at the person across the aisle or sitting next to you going, I sure hope they get this message. This examination is personal. And it's going to reveal, as examinations do, you know, what is the purpose of an examination? Right? And why is it so uncomfortable? Um, you didn't know you were going to have a pop quiz this morning. Pop quizzes are not a lot of fun. Um, this is a, but this is more than a quiz. The reason we don't like them is because they show up where the holes are in our knowledge or ability, right? That's why it's so uncomfortable. If you know well in advance everything that's going on and you're able to uh, answer all the questions without even thinking about it too much, do you worry about an exam? No. Do you worry about a quiz? No. It's when you are faced with questions that test the edges of your knowledge that it's not much fun. Particularly when it reveals, wow, I do not... It's not that the edges of my knowledge are out here in the vast universe somewhere. No, they're like here. You know, This is what I know. And I don't know anything else. It's uncomfortable because it reveals our own weaknesses. It reveals our own inadequacies and struggles. But it also reveals not just the negative things or things that we don't know. But it does, it does uh, examinations do reveal something about what we do know and the strength of it. And here we have, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The word examine here, uh, and then you'll see test as well. These are interchangeable terms. They're different terms in the original language, but they're like synonyms. They mean, they're very similar. They both have the idea of proving something. This one specifically, proving something by trial or putting something to the test. Now that sounds like a pretty serious kind of examination, doesn't it? Sometimes we do a self-check on things and we go, yeah, do I know something? Yep, 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 and we just kind of blow it off, right? And then we get in the middle of it and go, ooh, maybe I should go back and read the directions again. At least I do that. Probably nobody else here does that, but I do that time to time. An examination will prove, uh, will reveal your personal, and I'm using the term orthodoxy, your about being in the faith and that your faith actually is um, the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. You will not know that if you just give it a lick and a promise and approach, approach uh, your own heart and your own knowledge and what you really believe casually. This is a serious matter. And that's what's behind this, proving it by trial. You should be spending time in the Word and not just, uh, here, let me just gloss over it real quick. Oop, I did my reading. Oop, I'm done. But to mull over it, meditate upon it, um, subject yourself to being uh, uh, tested, as it were, in conversation with others, asking questions, making sure that, that whether it's an actual person here or maybe reading uh, various resources like commentaries or something else, to say, all right, let me double-check what I'm doing here to make sure that I truly am in the faith. Is my, is my faith truly orthodox? Or is it just lip service? Is my faith like that of the devils who also believe and tremble? Or is a faith that actually 
walks in submission to our Lord and King, as well as just believing that he's there and believing that he's done some great stuff. So proving by trial, this exam that we need to be doing in our own hearts is something that should be a, a daily thing. This is a be examining yourselves. This is not a one and done exam. Okay, I uh, did my, my yearly pulse, spiritual pulse check. Okay, so I must be good and I don't have to think about this anymore. No, on a daily basis, we need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer before our Lord and, and coming before him, not with senses of, oh, I'm the sense of, I'm just, I'm doubting everything all the time, but in the sense of, I know that I can be self-deceived and I know that I don't know everything and I can't really know everything, but as much as I do know and have opportunity to, to learn and grow in, I need to be doing that. I need to take it seriously to prove what you believe by trial. But it goes beyond just orthodoxy. There's a, there was a um, um, evangelist a number of years ago, uh, Vance Habner, I think his name was. First name was Vance for sure. Anyway, it's kind of a one of these a, kind of a cowboy kind of evangelist that that sort of character, uh, very colorful and uh, and so on. He had a lot of uh, thought provoking ways of putting things. He used uh, he used this phrase that I've thought of for many years, and I think it's quite appropriate um, describing the reality that many people are straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty. And the fact is, is that just because you have the right head knowledge, if you don't have the heart, if you don't really have the relationship, um, then you don't have Christ. It's like going up to a house and admiring the window dressings and uh, the, the paint job and the flooring and missing the fact that the owner of the house is standing in the middle of it and you never interact with him. So examination, as you, as Paul tells them to test themselves, and he changes the word there, test. And this word test uh, is actually going to be the one that every time you see test in the rest of this, it's going to be some form of this same word. This is still the idea of proving something, but it's about, it, it, it often gets used with a thorough self-examination. There is a thoroughness, thoroughness here to prove what you're doing. In other words, that you're actually living it out. When you're subject to scrutiny by the Lord and by his spirit, he's not just going to say, all right, um, were you able to check off the boxes on the pop quiz? Are you living it? And if you're not, well, it's an uncomfortable position to be in because it makes you face up to the fact that I'm not living it. There's a problem with my view of reality here as to what's really going on in my heart. Do, am I orthodox? Great. But am I living it? Is, uh, is it? Because examination will reveal not only your personal orthodoxy, it will reveal your personal relationship with your Lord. And the implication here, when he says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Um. He's regarding them as saints. They have an orthodox profession. And they've had 
moments where they, certainly many of them, particularly by this time, there have been many that have repented of their past actions. They've disciplined where they needed discipline. They've started to understand that Paul's not the bad guy, that he actually is the one that is anointed by God to, to be ministering to them. And so they've humbled themselves. But there's, there's, as we've seen, there's been holdouts on this. But he's regarding all of them as saints. But he says, unless you fail the test, unless that thorough self-examination reveals that, wow, I, no matter what else I said, what I do says a different story. So unless you fail that test, you're Christ. And the implication here is, since you are Christ's, act like it. That's really what he's saying here in a, in a nutshell. Uh, let me take just a slight rabbit trail. This is a slight one. Uh, brought up by one of the, the commentaries that I read, which I thought was a great, a great point. Um, particularly uh, Charles Hodge brought this up. This verse really opens up uh, the thought that it is possible for a genuine Christian to have doubts about their situation with Christ. Now, uh, Calvin, in his commentary on this, uh, Calvin thought that a lack of assurance indicated a lack of salvation, and he was trying to deal with um, Rome, basically. And, uh, the, you know, the total lack of assurance that's there. And he's trying to say, no, if, if, if you're Christ, then you have assurance. So understand that. But Hodge disagreed, and I think Hodge is right, uh, with all due respect to Calvin. Uh, that th this verse would seem to indicate that, yeah, you can look at yourself. and it, the, the very fact that he's saying examine yourself implies that there might be some question. And you probably ought to check. And so if, if there are doubts and so on, okay. I mean, obviously all of us would like to have absolute perfect peace and assurance without ever any doubt whatsoever that, that we are totally walking uh, at peace with, with God. There's only one small problem with that. We keep sinning. So it bears uh, you know, out, I think, that there's a necessity of, yes, examining ourselves, test ourselves, if we fail the test, well, then we know what to do, don't we? Humble ourselves, cry out for mercy, and look to the Lord to truly redeem us. And then help us to walk as he sanctifies us and makes us more and more holy unto himself. Anyway, that's the rabbit trail about assurance. But uh, assurance, as wonderful as it is, is not essential to salvation, but it is something that as the Lord sanctifies us, um, I believe, will become more and more true of us even as we continue to struggle with our sins. So our exam your examination is personal. Paul just gets right into it with him. But I, I don't know about, uh, about you when you think about examinations. Do you ever think of, of examinations as a really positive thing? Um, depending on the subject matter, if you really know the subject matter well, uh, maybe you might think, yeah, piece of cake, aced it, feel really great about myself. Uh, with me and, oh, say, 
accounting, not so much. Um, the first exam I ever failed in my life was an accounting exam my freshman year in college, and it was a devastating experience. Wasn't used to failing tests. Wasn't that I always got A's, but I wasn't used to failing them. And man, I... And, and this is the kind of thing was like, oh, I made a little mistake. Oh, I, I, I kind of messed up here and there. I mean, no. The reason that I failed that exam is that in spite of all my study, and a lot of my subject matters, you know, I'd read through the stuff and so on, and I'd have it, I'd kind of photographic memory, and I'd remember, I could see the page, I could write the answers. Math doesn't do that, you know. It doesn't really work that way, at least not for me. And uh, the reason I failed that test is not because I had a brain blip, it's because I absolutely had utter brain fog when it came to that. I did not understand it at all. It was disheartening. It was like, oh. In fact, I did so badly at accounting. I did scrape by and pass the class with a C, but, oh. After that, I was like, okay. I was in a pre-law major at that time. I thought, if this is what I have to do in order to have to, I'm done with this. And I changed my major. Um, I decided that it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't my gifting. Um, exams, we can sometimes think like uh, of things that can tear us down. And there is an element, particularly if it shows up our weaknesses and shows up the, the holes in our knowledge, the holes in our character and behavior, that, yeah, it can have that tearing down aspect. But if we stop there, that's a mistake. Part of the, there's two reasons for exams beyond um, just, you know, showing what we know or don't know. And it's related to both who's taking the exam and who's giving the exam. For the one taking the exam, yep, it can be kind of devastating when we look at ourselves and go, oh, I just don't, I don't have a clue. I don't know how to do this. I, I'm totally at a loss. I, and I don't see any hope that I will ever have a clue at this. So th from that standpoint, yeah, it can be, a, it can be devastating. From the person that's giving the test, it's not only to find out the edges of our knowledge, but it's also to help that individual know, and then by extension help us to know, what we can do to make up those holes. To figure out, alright, here's the areas that I need to really focus in on because I'm lacking it. So examinations can also be, and that's the point here of these verses 6 through 10, they can be restorative. And Paul is encouraging them in this. He says, I hope you will find out we have not failed the test. Um, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Now, as, you, as I read through this just now, and as I read through a little before, if your head was trying to follow what Paul was saying and figure out what in the world is he saying here, you are not alone. This is a, these are a couple of verses here that are a challenge to interpret. And I found um, a variety of, of uh, interpretations from the commentators on this section. But I think we can boil, down, uh, boil this down to a, a general principle. Paul is not trying to say, I've been beating up on you so that I can beat up on you. So that you can feel miserable. I just, I went out, I woke up this morning in an effort to come to you today and, and help you feel absolutely as miserable as possible. Am I succeeding? 
That's what he was accused of doing, by the way. He was accused of just being uh, mean and, and um, discouraging in what he was doing as he was challenging them. All the Corinthian church could see was, yeah, he's poking holes in our, in our righteousness and we don't like it. But Paul here is making it really clear that the whole goal about this is to restore to right behavior. That's what he's after. If they do what is right, and this is kind of a, in this examination, it's kind of a almost quasi-legal kind of setting here of evidence and argument and so on. Paul has given evidence of his calling, evidence of his commission, evidence of the rightness of his behavior, and yet, and he's prepared, if necessary, to do that again. But what he's saying here is, if they do what is right, that stops the whole proceedings. He doesn't have to trot out all of his evidence to defend himself. So what he's saying is, if, if this leaves it hanging in somebody's mind that I haven't done everything I should do, or I'm not everything I should be, or I've blown it in some way, well, I just, I don't care. It's done. We're, if they want to continue to think that, that's all right. As long as you do right, I'm a happy man. And that's what Paul is saying here, because he wants to see their right behavior restored, no matter what it takes. Uh, an examination also restores some other things. Uh, and verse 8 suggests these here. Uh, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You know, examinations, like we've said before, tend to point out your errors, your, your uh, false understanding. <laughs> you ever read uh, sometimes online, they get pictures of, of, uh, of uh, kids' tests, test answers. Anybody ever read some? Some of those are pretty great. I was looking at one this past week, and uh, the one that sticks out to my mind right now was like, can you solve da 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 And the answer was, no. <laughs> it's just like, well, okay then. Um, at least he's honest, right? No, he couldn't. And, uh, part of examinations are to help us particularly when we get the feedback on them, to be able to start thinking clearly. And Paul has said elsewhere, you know, we didn't come to you with fancy rhetoric and all, we came to preach Christ and Him crucified. To the point, straight, this is, we're preaching the gospel here. And Paul is saying here, um, I'm only doing what I'm doing for the sake of the truth. Uh, again, uh, to uh, uh, quote Charles Hodge here, he says that this verse fixes the limits of all ecclesiastical power, whether ordinary or miraculous. And I sort of was thinking about that. Basically, he's saying that this helps you understand that the church's authority and Paul's authority was about the truth. It was declarative. It was judicial. It was not civic. It was not uh, corporal uh, punishment and discipline. It was judicial statements in light of God's word about what should be done in light of the truth. That's the extent of ecclesiastical power. And of course, 
where the church gets into trouble in this area is when they start uh, confusing uh, themselves with the state and deciding that uh, they have the rights to, uh, you know, uh, take people's property, take people's liberty, take people's life even at some points in church history, unfortunately. Now, the, the Corinthians had misread Paul. And they, they accused him of thinking that he had the power of their souls. When all he's saying here is all I ever had and all I ever asserted was the power of the word through a commissioned spokesman. He, I'm the spokesman. This is God's word. This is what should be done. That was the extent of the power. It was according to the truth. We cannot do anything against the truth. I must say what the Lord has said, but only for the truth. That is his goal, and that is the extent of his, of his, uh, of his power and authority. That, by the way, totally different passage, and I, I, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole or path or whatever, rabbit trail, um, but this verse helps you get a hold of what is meant by the keys of the kingdom. Um, I mean, I, in the past, I've had somebody accuse me of believing that I, I could kick somebody out of heaven because I taught about keys of the kingdom. It's like, what? <laughs> no. All I can do is judicial stating in light of God's word as the spokesman, period. That's it. Man looks on the appearance, God looks on the outward. Uh, I mean, uh, man looks on the appearance, God looks on the heart. That's the extent of my power. Um, and uh, it all related to the visible church. So this kind of understanding that the Corinthians church is not, the Corinthian church had is not something that was unique to them. I mean, others can have it as well. But, Examination restores not just behavior, but also right thinking in light of the truth. And that's the point here in verse 8. And then, when you've got that, then discipline takes on the proper cast and tone and goal. Because examination will restore right discipline within the context of the church. And verses 9 through 10 makes that clear. I don't want to be severe in my use of the authority God has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Uh, in this case, um, what's, what's being restored in, is the Corinthians' correct understanding of what discipline is supposed to be about. Again, Paul wasn't disciplining them so that they would be miserable, just so he could say they were miserable. So he could rub them in the dirt and keep his thumb on them and, and uh, you know, make sure that they know how awful and wicked they were. And boy, you're under my thumb now. Paul has nothing, has nothing to do with biblical discipline. I, I love this, um, this uh, word here in verse nine. Your restoration is what we pray for. And this word's gonna be repeated down there in verse 11. When you speak, this is the goal. This, this word is marvelous. This is an amazing word in the original uh, language. It has restoration meaning ability that is gained through training, through discipline, 
or instruction. Um, it can be translated elsewhere as being fully qualified. We long for you to be fully qualified, but it's, it's fully qualified because what is broken has been mended. And it's, oh, it's a rich, rich word. What, what is the purpose of discipline? Uh, it's a recognition that, yes, uh, there's brokenness because of sin. We've, we've broken relationships. We've broken hearts. We've, we've broken God's law. And our, even our ability to, re- to uh, restore ourselves is non-existent. Paul's saying, I'm praying for your restoration. I'm praying that as you've been trained, as you've been disciplined, as you've been instructed, that your ability, your qualifications to walk in a holy and righteous manner before the Lord will be restored, will be brought back from that broken condition to being fully repaired and functional. Paul was not eager to exercise the power that he rightly possessed. Uh, Take a look at, at verse 10. Got your finger on that? And now turn back a page or two to chapter 10. Now, remember, we have, we have used as the overarching theme of this entire series uh, to be tearing down strongholds, taking that from chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Uh, okay, there we go. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, tear, we destroy your arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And yet here, in, now in, the, in chapter 13, verse 10, he says that God has given him authority for building up and not for tearing down. So has Paul forgotten what he just wrote a little bit ago? No, he hasn't. Because the object has changed. He's tearing down strongholds. But in the desire, and even from 1 Corinthians, remember the big section there about building up the church and building up one another, that's still there. Ultimately, what is the purpose of discipline? It's not to make people grovel. It is about making people whole again. Mending what is broken. This is a, a statement, again, Hodge was great in, throughout this section. And a little longer um, uh, quotation here that really helps put this in perspective about what church discipline is all about and why it's exercised. And on what it's not about, too. Christ, he says, would not sanction an unjust decision or clothe the arm of man with supernatural power to inflict unmerited punishment. That doesn't... The unmerited punishment on the part of human authority is not sanctioned by God, in other words. The apostles could not strike a saint with blindness nor deliver a child of God unto Satan. The church and its ministers are in the same predicament still. They're powerful only for good. Their mistaken decisions or unrighteous judgments are of no avail. They affect the standing of the true believer in the sight of God no more than the judgments of the Jewish synagogues when they cast out the early disciples as evil. 
Truth and holiness are a sure defense against all ecclesiastical power. No one can harm us if we be followers of that which is good. And then he cites 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's what discipline is for. It's to restore people unto uh, a right relationship with God within the context of the local church. It's not about keeping them um, in the grinder until some arbitrary limit is reached that we've decided is okay for their repentance to be genuine. So examination, as we examine ourselves and as we are subjected and as our, act, our actions and our beliefs are subject to the examination of the church, it's all about, all right, are we being restored? Is what's broken being mended? Are we being made whole again? And in that case, then, examination is restorative. And then finally, 11 through 14. I'm taking this off of the initial uh, phrase there in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Your examination, hey, it should be joyful. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. Examination should be joyful. Finally, brothers, rejoice. After all that Paul has said to them, confronting them, challenging them, rebuking them, repudiating them, showing their arguments to be foolish and sinful. He says to them, hey, be happy. <laughs> Does that seem incongruous to you? And yet this is in the context of being subjected to examination. It's their turn to be examined. They've been trying to hold Paul up to an artificial standard. Well, why should they be rejoicing? Well, the, what, the phrases that follow make that pretty plain. Rejoice. That's the governing phrase, governing command. Aim for restoration. There's that word again. Rejoicing in mended ways. That should cause you to rejoice. You know, the, yeah... The, the, the pain of the stripes might last a little while, but the joy that comes from restored relationships and righteousness, uh, you can't buy that. That's um, beyond wonderful in its uh, accomplishment, and therefore we should rejoice under you know, when, we, when we're disciplined and not think we're being put upon and not think that all how horrible and unjust it is that anybody would call anything that we do into account. No, rejoice when you're under examination. Second, rejoice in comforting exhortation. And the exhortation comes about because of understanding this, the original word behind comfort. It's not just comfort in the sense of, you know, arm around the shoulders, there, there, it'll be okay. But it's a comfort that comes about because of, of knowledge. And the word exhortation is implicit in that original word. Admonition back and forth with one another to bring someone into a right relationship. And therefore, it's a relationship that's restored on the basis of truth. Remember? Truth. Not on wishful thinking. Or ignoring the truth entirely. Um, so, there's joy when, yep, we're confronted, but we find comfort in that. Great. That's an area that I can deal with, I can repent of, I can move on from. Third, 
Examinations also do something else. Um, you look at it, if, if I were to give you all the same examination about anything in here, wouldn't matter what it was, um, what would be really cool to everybody would think would be awesome is if everybody got the right answer. It's kind of fun that way, when everybody gets it right. Of course, when everybody gets it wrong, I suppose there's comfort in the <laughs> in company. <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, it's obviously better if we all get it right. But uh, that's the focus here of agreeing with one another. This has the idea of putting first things first. You know, part of the Corinthians problem, really, um, and we'll see this also with the next, the next one as well, is that each of them had different priorities for what the church should be doing or what they should believe or whatever else. Well, when they walked in agreement and the examination would show that, hey, we, we really do agree with each other about who Christ is and what he calls us to do and what the nature of his authority is and what discipline's all about and what our conduct should be and so on and so on. That brings peace and that brings an opportunity for rejoicing because you're not at odds with each other. Right? You've got your priorities in, uh, in common and you rejoice in those common priorities. Following up hard on the heels of that is the next phrase, live in peace. Really an outcome of having those common priorities uh, held fast together is this peaceful unity that comes. Essentially, Paul is coming first, uh, full circle back to the original problem of the schism that the Corinthian church was undergoing because of their, um, their partisan spirit that wanted to find uh, their... Their, their value and their, their truth vested in this individual or that individual or the other individual. It was really about pride. To live in peace with each other uh, speaks to a unity that only Christ can bring. And again, that examination process, are we really in Christ together? Are we really saints together? Are we really serving the same Lord together? Then what are we bickering about? So live in peace together. And that's, boy, that kind of exam would bring a lot of joy. And then uh, the next, uh, next one, greet one another with a holy kiss in verse 12. Of course, uh, this is um, communicating a common practice of the day. Uh, we don't necessarily, uh, some cultures still do this. Remember the first time I went to Bolivia and... Uh, uh, got lined up in front of the church and the whole church came up to greet me and and everybody's kissing me on the cheeks back and forth and I'm like, this was really a, a shock to my American bubble. Uh, anyway, after a while, I kind of got into the spirit of the thing, but it's a holy kiss. All right? Not a mere formality. In other words, that's the, let's get past the cultural expression of this and get to the principle. Paul is saying the love that you're, this, this holy kiss is not something that's a, you're not just gratifying your sense of pleasure or whatever. And I, I don't even necessarily mean in a really indecent manner, but just in the sense of, of just having it all about, yeah, we're, um, look how, you know, buddy, buddy we are. This is about a holy fellowship, 
A sanctified love towards one another is the point. To greet one another that way, to walk with a sense of no distrust, no mere formality, no going through the motions so you can give the appearances, but a genuine, holy, as unto the Lord, fellowship that is motivated by love for one another and the best interests of others. That is something worth rejoicing. And this examination will find out, will help us see whether or not we're just going through the motions or if we actually truly do love each other. And then finally, um, and that also flows into all the saints greet you back and forth. So here's this fellowship that's going on. And then in verse 14, we have this marvelous uh, benediction, which I'll actually use a little bit later. Um, Though this is not necessarily in the list, I see it also as a cause of rejoicing. When uh, we rejoice uh, in God's grace in subjecting us, to the exam, in God's grace and being faithful to us. Uh, here we have something that seems a little bit uh, like Paul. Were you really thinking about these nouns and who was practicing them when you wrote this down? You know, we often think about the grace of God, right? And we think about our Lord Jesus and his love for us as his children. And so we might first of all, think, well, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God the Father in the communion of the Holy Spirit, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But no, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think Paul got the answer, the order right and what he, he meant what he meant. Um, as uh, another commentator, uh, R.B.G. Tasker says, the unusual order in which the three persons are mentioned reminds us that in the thought of the early church about the nature of God, The redemption wrought by Christ has a primary place. There can be no adequate understanding of God's love apart from the cross. And the only lasting fellowship between men is the fellowship of sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So ultimately this examination is rejoicing in the source of our oneness, the source of our unity, and that is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, who bestowed that unmerited favor upon us, expressing the love of the Godhead on our behalf, and then further lived out as it was applied to his children, and then we are united together, gathered into the church, so that we can walk together rejoicing in this common salvation that is ours because of Christ and his grace. And so... As we examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith, and realize the source of that faith, the source of the grace, the source of his goodness, yes, it brings rejoicing as well. So if we are going to defeat spiritual strongholds, examination is necessary. But not just any examination will do. It has to get personal. It has to challenge us to true restoration. And it helps us to find joy in what God says is necessary for faithful, unified engagement in the battle. It is His grace, His goodness, His gospel that will accomplish the work that He has begun in us and the work that He will do in others. 
So by God's grace, by his enabling, tear down the strongholds of the adversary in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and think about this passage, Lord, we know that we are all subject to your examination. Do you also command us to examine ourselves? Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do it honestly. Help us to do it faithfully. Help us to do it vigorously and regularly. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will not try to write our own questions, but that we will live by yours. And as we do, Lord, grant us the joy that comes when we see restoration in ourselves and also in others. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.